Thank you, Anna Laura. We are speeding through the final passages that we find in the book of Galatians here, uh, covering a lot of verses today, same with last week. Uh, but this is actually the second to last sermon in our series. We'll be wrapping up our study of Galatians uh, next week. And then the following week will be the beginning of Advent, uh, the special season, four weeks, when the Christian church remembers the coming of Christ and his promise to come again. And so uh, look forward to that, but uh, we're not quite there yet. Let's look at these verses, uh, this passage first. Let's pray for God's help as we look at his word. Jesus, we need your help, and we thank you for your spirit and the help that he promises to give us. So please come and make us attentive to your word. I pray that every person's testimony today might be, God spoke to me personally, uh, that there might be a certain kind of movement by your spirit through your word, where each of us feel like we heard from your voice, uh, and that's the way your living word works. So please come and do that and glorify your son. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, we heard the news of yet another uh, school shooting, uh, this time on the West Coast at Saugus High School in the Los Angeles area, which left uh, three teenagers, including the shooter, dead, and several others also injured. It was also yet another occasion for heroic love to be put on display even in the midst of tragedy. You might have heard some stories like this, like when off-duty detectives like Officer Dan Flynn, uh, who happened to be dropping off one of his kids and therefore was nearby, uh, heard about the incident and immediately ran toward the danger, uh, looking for how he might help, even putting himself in potential harm's way. Or stories like neighbor Jose, who lives just on the corner near the school, who heard the gunshots, knew exactly what they were, and proceeded to run outside without a shirt or shoes, in fact, so urgent did he perceive the need to be as he saw kids stampeding by, he ran out, screamed at the frantic kids to get into his house, to get into his house, and he gave them shelter. It's moments like these, you think about it, got me thinking again this week about why it is that love like this so often shows up in times of crisis. It's unusual, and yet in a strange way, it's also typical. How heroic love shows up in times of crisis like this, why sometimes our greatest displays of self-sacrifice and honorable love comes in times of danger. And I wonder if it's because as selfish as we normally are in ordinary life, that sometimes it takes real electricity inside to get our hearts moving. Sometimes it takes something unusual, even jolting, to get our whole soul to respond with unusual, extraordinary acts of sacrificial love. But what about the ordinary, unheroic moments in life? You know, most of the moments of our day today, when we're still called 
to love. Well, guess what? It still takes something special, something extraordinary. And our passage today tells us that that's exactly what God gives us, a jolt to the heart by the name of the Holy Spirit, which is the main character of this passage. You see, Paul continues to give us in this part of his letter instructions on love. As we saw last week, he made this great proclamation that the grace of God liberates us to to love. That all of our attention and energy that once was devoted just to me, to my self-preservation, to my ambition, to my forward movement, to my interests, that all that energy and attention by God's grace gets turned outwards towards other people because now I know I'm loved in Christ. I know I'm forgiven. I'm adopted into his family. I'm secure. And so all that energy doesn't need to be devoted to myself anymore. It could spill over generously, even sacrificially, to those around me. I'm taken care of. I'm freed now to pay attention to you. The grace of God frees us to love, which is why in the verses that just precede our passage, the Apostle Paul said in chapter 5, verse 6, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. And in verse 13, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the Entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. If the gospel is taking root in your life, it makes you a better lover of neighbor. And Paul continues that argument in our opening verse here in chapter 5, verse 16. So I say, he says, continuing, walk by the Spirit. And in verse 22, you can tell he's continuing his train of thought on how to live a life of love when he says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love. And in chapter 6, verse 2, he says, carry each other's burdens as he gives specific examples of how to love. And in verse 10, do good to all people, extending even the scope and the reach of our love. He's going to keep teaching us on some lessons of love here today. But his starting point is our first point, which is this, that love is supernatural. Love is supernatural. Literally, it is something that is spiritual, given by the Holy Spirit. Again, verse 16, so I say, walk by the Spirit. Verse 18, Paul talks about being led by the Spirit. Verse 25, since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Friends, we need the power of God to love. One thing that comes up in my household from time to time is the issue of how frequently it is that we drive our car around with that yellow empty light on. Going from trip to the next trip, to the next trip, just living in anxiety, (laughs) seeing how far you can stretch it before you find yourself in shame on the side of the road. It hasn't happened yet, I keep telling my wife as she shakes her head. I think even now I'm not going to (laughs) look. 
But of course we know that we can't drive very far on an empty tank. You can't go very far without fuel when talking about a car. Friends, you can't love very far without fuel either. The Spirit's fuel. And far too many of us live day to day running on empty and wondering why you have a hard time loving. Because we don't essentially believe that to love well, we need God's supernatural help. Because love is not simply about knowing what you need to do. Love is not simply kicking yourself in the pants to get yourself to mobilize. Love begins with a heart that's transformed. A heart that's encountered love itself. The preeminence of love, the very life of God in the Son of God who laid himself down in love, dying for you and me, taking the death that we deserved, not because we asked for it or deserved it, but simply as a gift of love. So here's the question. When you lack love, when you're trying to serve a person, care for them, for a family member, or that you, maybe a family member that you've had a hard history with, or maybe someone in your life that simply irritates you in the workplace or maybe in the home. Coworker that always seems to steal credit for your work. A neighbor that always seems to put their stuff in the way. You know you can't love. In those moments and in the coming week, in those moments, how often do you, will you run to God for help? Seven times in this passage, Paul mentions the Spirit of God. Where do we get power to love? God. He must do it. He must change our hearts. And one reason we need this spiritual power is because love is a battle. I mean, listen to the language that we find here in these first couple of verses, verse 16 to 18. Listen for the words contrary and conflict. So I say, Paul writes, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh, for the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. The flesh... And the Spirit are in conflict with each other. They are at war with each other. The Spirit wants love and the flesh wants selfishness. And by the flesh, of course, Paul isn't talking about our physical bodies. That's a, a New Testament word that refers to the part of our humanity that's fallen and sinful, specifically selfish, addicted to me, living according to the principle of me centeredness. In fact, you see this list of the works of the flesh, the acts of the flesh in verse 19 through 21, and every single one of them, you can discern in them a principle of self-centeredness, where you are stealing interest away from people and stealing glory from God. Whether if it's sexual immorality, where you're using the gift of sex just to use people to satisfy yourself, all about me. Or if it's idolatry, which is to worship and give glory to another thing, a relationship or a person or your workplace or a gift that you might have, stealing and robbing glory from God. Or jealousy or selfish ambition, living your life filled up with an imagination surrounding yourself. 
go down the list, every single one of these that bespeak a self-centered principle in every one of our hearts. That's the flesh. In fact, that's why Paul there uses that language of you are not to do whatever you want because that's precisely what the flesh wants to do. Whatever you want that works for you. The spirit of love and the flesh of self-centeredness are always fighting within. And what we're told implicitly in this passage is you will lose that fight apart from the help of God. There is a raging and intense battle, an even spiritually violent battle of desires within us, and we need the power of God. And what that power looks like is the Holy Spirit reminding us again and again the truth of the gospel. Just a couple of verses before this passage, we are told that God not only legally adopts us as his children into his family, he gives us his Holy Spirit to live within us, to bear witness in our hearts that we indeed are the children of God so that we by impulse learn to cry out, Father, Abba. See, the Holy Spirit preaches to our hearts the truth of God's adopting love. The Holy Spirit preaches to our hearts the free gift of God's grace for sinners like you and me. The Holy Spirit preaches to our hearts the hope of Christ. He preaches to us Jesus again and again and again, telling us that you are loved, that you are forgiven, that you are a child of God, drilling into our hearts the gospel that empowers us to love. And so we need to look to the Holy Spirit. So this week, in any moment or any relationship where you're struggling to love, will you stop? Will you just stop just for a second and pray and ask the Holy Spirit for help? Will you pray that God's Spirit would reconnect you vitally, powerfully, with the love of Jesus for you, that your heart might be liberated to love. Number one, love is supernatural. Number two, love is character. Love is character. In verses 22 and 23 of chapter 5, we find a list that is famously called the fruit of the Spirit, which means, so if you're Life is like a tree, say, and if you plant the roots of your heart into the love of Christ and the Holy Spirit fertilizes your soul, what fruit should emerge from the tree that is your life? The answer is love, the fruit of the Spirit, love and putting the interest of others before your own. But not only love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That's just a word soup. What do those mean briefly? Joy. Take and delight not only in God, but in other people. See, not just doing good things, but actually letting them into your heart where they make you happy. If you delighted in someone lately, peace, finding contentment in Christ, confidence that God has been good to me, God has taken care of me, 
so I can take care of you. Forbearance, also known as patience, which is the admirable ability to take hits from people again and again and again, or to take hits from the brokenness of life without withering or blowing up. See, patience isn't just biting the bullet. It's suffering with joy for someone else's good. Kindness, this basic longing for things to go well for other people. Not just in the big things, but even in the little things, where you smile because something worked out for a friend. Goodness, purity of heart towards others. Not being so complicated in a way that eventually turns you fake or hypocritical. Purity of heart. Faithfulness, loyalty of relationships. Sticking with people. Being reliable and dependable, not flaky or choosy. Gentleness, treating a person in accordance with their weakness and vulnerability. Let me say that again. Gentleness is treating a person like they are vulnerable, which is what they really are. Self-control, lastly, not acting on our impulses, but taking time to restrain ourselves for the good of another person. That means sometimes saying no to what I want in order to make space for someone to get what they want or need. Self-control, too, is a form of love. And friends, will you notice that this list of the fruit of the Spirit, they are primarily attributes of character. Those inner qualities that sort of flavor and season the different activities that we are a part of. Listen to what Elise Fitzpatrick says, a wonderful Bible teacher and author. She says this, Real progress in the Christian life is not gauged by our knowledge of Scripture, our church attendance, time in prayer, or even our witnessing, although it isn't less than these things. Maturity in the Christian life is measured by only one test, how much closer to Christ's character we have become. The result of the Spirit's work is not more activity. No, the result of His work are in our quality of life. They are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. See, character is, is not just love in terms of action. It's, it's more like the aroma of how you love. It's, it's what a person smells like, as it were. Right? It's just that vibe that you get. Is this person for me or against me? Are they essentially attentive to me, or is their mind darting to other things, and most of all, to themselves? One of the biggest pieces of evidence as Ms. Fitzpatrick has reminded us that we are growing in the gospel is that we're being transformed in the way that our character changes our daily interactions with people. Not just what we do, but how we do it. The tone of our voice. Not just in the big heroic sacrifices that we make, but also in the little things that can't even be nailed down or even sometimes even described. Recently, we started our, our training and discernment process for ordained and commissioned leaders, candidates for the office of elder and 
deacon and deaconess and shepherdess. And one of the things that we repeat again and again to these candidates and before our members who are responsible for nominating and electing these candidates is that the number one qualification that the Bible gives for servant leadership, the most important thing in God's heart, is not your competence, your gifts. It's your character. Whether you're humble, even behind closed doors, so it's not an act. It's an embedded principle in your life. It's a habit that just spills over. Whether you put people first, whether you're truly sorry for your sins, whether you can apologize and repent before other people, that's what matters most because, in fact, that's what impacts the life of a community most. It gets into the atmosphere, in the air. It sets the tone. It shapes who we become as a church and who we become as a people. Character matters. And so to close up this point, let me just simply ask you, As you look down this list of the fruit of the Spirit, again, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control. See, I think you think you know what I'm going to ask right now, and I'm going to try to surprise you by asking you this question first. In what ways can you say, I have actually made good progress on one of these items? In what ways can you actually say, Thank you, God. I actually see signs that I'm a little bit more patient than I used to be. Thank you, God. I'm so grateful that I'm a little bit more gentle with my words than I used to be. Or at least I care more than I used to. I notice it when I'm not, and that's progress too. You see, the goal here is not simply to say, I stink at that. The goal is to say, if, they, if you have embraced Christ, then you have God's Spirit living in you, taking residence in your life. And as long as His life is alive in you, then that means He is producing fruit in that tree that is your life. There's going to be evidence of some of this in you. There will be. And maybe for some of you, what you need to the honor of Christ is to have eyes of faith to notice that fruit indeed in your life. And not to think that maturity is just to be down on yourself. Because you might be stealing praise from Jesus and his Holy Spirit, the work that he actually is doing. Do you have eyes to see? But of course, there's also that second question. Where do you need to grow? Because by God's grace, you want to grow. I know you do. If you have God's Spirit, you long to see more of these fruit manifest in your life. Which one of these things Maybe can you pray over this week? Again, trusting that it's not just up to your will and commitment to make it happen, but in fact, first point, growing in this begins by the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit. Embracing deeply the message of God's love for you. Letting the Spirit preach to your hearts that you are adopted into God's family, that you are secure by your Heavenly Father's Love, dear friends, where do you need to grow? Love is supernatural. Love is character. Thirdly, love is community. And what I want to give here, covering the remainder of this passage, really are what I think are four practices of loving, spirit-led community. There's a lot of things here. We can't cover every word and phrase, 
But I want to just draw out four things that we ought to be doing in our relationships here in the church and in the community if the grace of God is, in fact, impacting our lives. So what does it look like? Four marks. You can jot them down. We can talk about them a little bit. Number one, resist comparison. Resist comparing yourself with others all the time. Chapter 5, verse 26, let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. In chapter 6, verse 4, Paul says this, each one should test their own actions. Then they can take pride in themselves alone without comparing themselves to someone else. And so I ask you, what's one of the biggest cancers that kills relationships in community. It's a habit that we have of constantly looking around and comparing ourselves, measuring ourselves up against those around us. And maybe even in the last hour since you've been here, walked in the door perhaps, maybe you noticed How does that person look, or does this person talk better than I talk, or laugh more sweetly than I laugh? I don't know what it is for you that you're most tempted to be comparing. Does this person earn more than me? Are their kids better behaved? Do they have more friends than me? And what Paul gives us insight into here is the way that he talks about this comparison as a a form of pride. Again, he says in verse 26, chapter 5, let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other, envying being one expression of conceit. You see, envy often feels sorry for itself, but deep down, oftentimes, there's a pride thing going on. I ought to be as good as them. I I ought to be better than them. I deserve more. A principle of self-centeredness and pride. And here's the reality. You know this. We experience this. You can't love a person you envy. You cannot love a person that you're competing against. Because quietly, you want them to lose. And we see this, of course, when we're just a little bit happy when they fail or fall. But the grace of God softens our heart, doesn't it? Reminds us that we don't deserve anything that we have, neither us nor they. It starts to melt the envy in our hearts and gives us a different kind of contentment. Again, believing that God has been good to me. God has made me who I am. God has made me a work in progress. I may not be what they are, but I am what I am, and this is the am that Jesus loves. Thank you. No. (laughs) Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Resist competition. Resist competition. Resist comparison. Secondly, another practice or marker, don't lift the heavy stuff alone. Told in chapter 6, verse 2, carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. The other day we had trouble in our home with our washer, and so of course I had to pull out my handyman expertise one more time. 
scramble through YouTube videos to figure out how to fix the dang thing. But part of the problem, of course, was getting into the back panel of the washer, which was hard when our dryer is stacked on top of it. So as I was tinkering away, there was a moment where I tried to take the dryer off and was testing to see how heavy it was, looking around to see if anyone was going to see this disaster as a witness, my children or my wife, testing it, realizing this could end really badly, right? And then, of course, suggesting to Paula, well, if you're, if you're open to it, you mind, you think you might be able to? Of course, I think her first suggestion was, you want to call someone up? You want to, is there anyone else, you know, a brother down the street that might be able to? But I said, no, no, I, th- I think we can do this. And so we, uh, you know, stretched a little bit and got our hands underneath our dryer and we slowly talking it through, getting the kids out of the way, picked that big thing and, and slowly got it and success. I don't know how we did it. I'll tell you, I was proud of my wife. I think she carried most of it, I'm pretty sure. That's right. Saved me. If it turned out differently, I wouldn't be telling the story, I'll tell you that, right? But it was a moment, I could just detect it in my heart. My preference was to be able to do that myself. I wanted to be able to just take care of it, partly because it was more efficient, just grab it and just do it, but part of it because of pride, because it takes humility to ask for help, doesn't it? It it, it takes a softness of heart to say, "I, I can't do this alone. Friends, whatever that is that you are carrying right now, that big dryer in your arms or on your back, you can't carry that alone. And if you could just visualize, if you look around this room or maybe after our service as you're talking to people, you just, what you need to visualize is a ceiling high burden, a backpack that tall on people's backs. I mean, look around. Those are the invisible burdens that every single one of us are carrying. Some of us bigger and heavier than others. That is true. But not one of us has an empty backpack. You got to visualize it so that you know that, first of all, we're in it together. Second of all, we have burdens that are too big to carry alone. We need somebody to come in and get their shoulder underneath and put some of that weight on their own back on your own back to be able to love a friend and to let yourself be loved by a friend, to get on the phone. Some some of you need to get on the phone this week or send a text message or nudge a person next to you and say, I can't do it, I need you. Will you please carry this with me. I mean, you're hearing it here, so everybody has, you always have permission, but everyone has extra permission to do it. Take advantage of it. It's like a coupon. Run with it in the community. No one's going to be surprised when you say, I can't do this alone. Will you carry this with me? So someone in your life that you've been noticing carrying a load on their own, whose life can we enter and say, let me shoulder that weight together with you. Who's it going to be? Who's it going to be this week? Thirdly, Paul calls us to gentle restoration, another form of love. Chapter 6, verse 1. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. 
And so the Apostle Paul, of course, is telling us that we're all sinners and we all need the grace of God and the grace of one another's help, sometimes spiritually, that we indeed ought to engage each other and not say, well, that's their life and this is mine. We ought to engage each other and not avoid. If you've been in one of our life groups over the last couple of months, you have been going through a study called Caring for One Another, and part of that has been practical instructions in how to love each other in community, but including in how to love each other when we're struggling with sin, how to talk to each other. Go back to that material. If you weren't a part of a group, we'll give it to you. We would love for you to be well-equipped in learning how to do this. Paul is telling us, though, go to these dear people, speak to them, engage them, but do so gently. The goal is not simply to rebuke, to tell them off, but to restore. That's a different word, isn't it? To restore, to heal, to bring them back to their heavenly father who deeply loves them like the prodigal son's Picture that great story of a father waiting, watching the horizon for his son's return. So much does he yearn to be reunited. This is the father's heart for those who have strayed from him. We are restoring people to that father, and therefore, out of that spirit, we are doing so gently. But we cannot ignore this. And we cannot pretend that one another's sin and failures does not affect the other. Yesterday, I spent part of the day uh, raking leaves and cleaning up part of our yard, and the thing that I kind of had to push off out of my mind as I was raking all these leaves, it wasn't going to help me, it was going to discourage me or just make me more frustrated, was the understanding that I had as I'm raking these piles of leaves that I don't have any trees back there. Whose leaves am I raking here? So again, I'm blocking that out of my head because it doesn't matter at that point. Still have to bag them up and get them out of our house. But of course, it's the neighbor's leaves. The neighbor's leaves blowing in over the fence through the doorway in the back because that's just part of being neighbors. I'm not blaming them. They've got some of our junk too. <laughs> like all my kids' balls that keep on getting kicked over, right? Piling up in their yards. By being neighbors, by being near each other, your leaves are my leaves. Your junk gets into my junk. Your stuff flies into my yard. You can pretend like someone else's sin isn't your business. It is your business. If we live in proximity as neighbors to one another, it does impact us. It should. Some of us are just telling ourselves, but I don't even have a tree in my yard. Jesus says, every tree is your tree. Every person in this community, your brother, your sister, who do you need to speak to this week? Where you see them just heading over a cliff, blind or maybe hard-hearted. Who do you need to reach out in love. And again, Paul's emphasis here is on the gentleness with which we're called to love. He says, by the Spirit, which of course means the Spirit of Jesus, and of course means the Spirit who produces the fruit of the Spirit, which includes love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Because the Spirit of God reminds you 
that you're a recipient of God's grace and you're a sinner too, a sinner that's been saved by grace alone. So you don't come in harshly. You don't come in judgmentally. You come in and you say, I love you. But I notice you've been given into peer pressure a lot lately. I love you, but I've been noticing that you've been hooking up with your romantic partner a lot these days, and it's really harming you in a way that you don't seem to be acknowledging. I love you, and the way that you're talking about people gossiping about them or criticizing them continually is just a cancer to your soul. I love you. Can we talk? In order to restore them, and to bring them back to a knowledge of the grace of God. And notice Paul says in the second half of verse 1, but watch yourselves or you also may be tempted. And what does that mean? I think he's talking about how easy it is for us to be tempted to feel spiritual pride. That when you're talking to someone about how they're screwing up, uh, even when you start off with your best of intentions, it's easy to start feeling a little self-righteous. Like, okay, they're messing up. How can they mess up like that? And I'm so glad I'm not. Not like them. Self-righteousness that creeps into our heart. Listen, you, you cannot have that conversation rightly unless you're low to the ground. Unless you know that no one deserves to be pinned to the wall more than you do. No one deserves the rebuke of Christ more than you do. No one needs, is more desperate for the restoring love of God more than you. And so there's no place for judgment or hypocrisy or some false exercise of a gift of rebuking, which doesn't exist, right? (laughs) Only gentleness, only the love of Christ. Lastly, we'll close up with this. Marks, again, marks of love and community, not only resisting comparison, not lifting the heavy stuff alone, but rather carrying each other's burdens, not only gentle restoration, but finally, long-term doing good. Chapter 6, verse 9, let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. Paul calls us out of the power of the gospel to do good to all people. All people. That means neighbor and enemy alike to meet the material and spiritual and social and relational needs of those around us. Paul says, starting with the family of believers, the family of God, so we don't neglect the church. You know, the hypocrisy of saying, well, here's my family, but look at all the good I'm doing out here. To feel responsible for those whom you're united to as brothers and sisters in Christ but also extending ourselves outward, running with all the energy of the love of God for us to love as we have been loved and we're told to do this without weariness because to love neighbor is often exhausting. And maybe some of you feel exhausted. You feel tired. 
And some of the worst kinds of weariness in doing good comes from not seeing its effect. Not knowing, is this even worth it? I'll keep doing it, but I don't even know if I'm doing the right thing or if it's doing any good. Which is why Paul's reminder here in verse 7 is so important when he says, Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. And then again in verse 9, let's not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. And what is Paul telling us? He says, your doing of good, your laying down your life, your love for a person, your sacrifice of time, of energy, of emotion, of material resources is like sowing a little tiny seed into a farm soil. And therefore, by that metaphor, that picture, Paul is saying, you don't know when it's going to sprout. You don't know how long it's going to take. You plant these tiny, near invisible and very fragile seeds into the ground, but you sow and you sow and you sow. And two things. One, you can't see the results immediately. It takes a long time to see the fruit. But number two, you will reap a harvest. If not in this life, then in the life to come. You do not labor in love in vain. But you need to have a farmer's mindset to understand how it is that God uses your little acts of love, your persevering acts of love. And so you see here, Paul is saying, hang in there. Don't forget You're not dealing with a microwave. Love is more like farming. Plant those seeds. Water it. Fertilize. Put the plow to the field. Day in and day out and wait. And put the plow to the field and sow some more and wait and wait. Because you reap what you sow. And at the proper time, we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Some of you feel ready to give up. I've tried getting to know the people on my block. It doesn't seem to be doing any good. Will you try again? By God's grace, will you try again? I've been loving this person that's just living sort of self-destructively, and I've been giving them all wisdom. I've been telling them the same thing again and again and again, and maybe it's even an addiction or something that's just not working. They can't seem to get it. I'm ready to give up. Will you love them again? Or maybe a spouse or a roommate, someone that's near to you that just doesn't seem like they're changing fast enough. And here's the truth. The people that are closest to us are the biggest collateral damage to our lack of love. Right? And so that person is hurting you. They're not changing fast enough. And you're ready to give up. Will you persevere and sow again and again and again? And even in the little things that you're doing, as Archbishop Desmond Tutu once put it, Do your little bit of good where you are. It's those little bits of good put together that overwhelm the world. Because that's how God's kingdom works. It's why every single one of you are nothing less than eternal agents of nothing less than God's eternal kingdom. 
You have that much power at your fingertips to invest little seedlings of life and love that will one day collectively produce an incredible harvest. And sometimes God, even here and now, gives us little glimpses of what that harvest of love might be. But the starting point for all of this, of course, is that internal electricity that we need to get our hearts moving. The Holy Spirit who comes and produces this love, the fruit of love. The Holy Spirit who preaches to our hearts that Jesus, by dying and rising again, loved us like we can barely imagine love to be. Forgiving our sins, setting our hearts free giving us his love that we, like him, might begin to love. So, of course, our starting point then is simply this. What have you known of the love of Jesus for you lately? Have you opened your heart to his love lately? Will you dare to do that? It might just teach you to love. Let's pray. We ask for your help.